0: Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We're broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in D.C., and I'm your host, Kiko Bourne. Lunch Agenda is a podcast that schools you on undercovered parts of the food system that I think we all need to know more about. We've had series about food access, food investment, food distribution, and how to educate about food. All those interviews are on your favorite podcast app, and behind-the-scenes info and episode picks are at kikosfoodnews.com or kikobuff on Instagram. You've tuned into the grand finale episode of my institutional food series. And so far in the series, we've explored hotel food, hospital food, and last week dove into food and correctional facilities, where about 2.8 million Americans have to eat every day. We heard from Halim Flowers about the lived experience of eating while incarcerated for 22 years in facilities from the East Coast to the West Coast and from Kanav Kathuria about his farm to prison project that's using food to change public consciousness toward those who are incarcerated. I do encourage you to listen to last week's episode if you haven't already. It's a it's a good grounding in what kind of food is served in prison cafeterias, commissaries and in solitary confinement when a real meal is being withheld. And what came through in the interviews to me really was a range of inadequacies that result in public safety risks, for example, when juvenile offenders who enter the system before their brain is fully developed miss out on years of nutrition that would prepare them to avoid situations of recidivism upon release. And we also talked about public health risks associated with diets comprised of empty calories and how 44% of people who are incarcerated suffer from diet-related illnesses such as diabetes, hypertension, and high blood pressure. And those conditions that are are taken with them when they walk out the gates of the prison at a high cost to the public medical system today we'll talk more about how food affects those on the inside in terms of their emotions their relationships and their aspirations i'm joined by leslie sobel an ethnographer with impact justice who studies issues of food and identity as well as Seth Sundberg, a formerly incarcerated entrepreneur whose business sprang from his experiences while in prison. But before launching into today's interview, I do want to let you all know that this is the last episode I'm hosting this year, as I prepare to take a few months of maternity leave. So stick with us through the end of the episode, because I'm excited to give you a scoop, or the scoop, I should say, on Alexia Brown and Nani Dutton, two brilliant guest hosts that you can expect to learn from while I'm gone. So before we dive in, let's get caught up with one last dose of Kiko's Food News for this year before I hand over the torch. So today, there are two headlines about farming and two about Maine, because who doesn't like thinking about Maine as summer approaches, I figure. Farming-wise, firstly, the U.S. has pulled out of the Tomato Suspension Agreement, a treaty with Mexican tomato growers that's governed imported tomatoes since 96. Because more than half of the fresh tomatoes in grocery stores come from across the border, this could soon mean expensive tomatoes and far fewer of them. It's likely that Mexican growers will reduce their tomato acreage and move to other crops, cutting the winter tomato supply dramatically. Meanwhile, the US will impose a 17.5% tariff on Mexican tomato imports starting Tuesday. And I think that was this Tuesday past. And economists say that could lead to shortages and price increases of up to 85% as soon as winter comes. Sounds like we have good reason to take advantage of local tomatoes this summer, I would say. Second, farming headline. A new report by the California Farm Bureau Federation in conjunction with UC Davis found that 56% of California farmers have been unable to find enough workers in the past five years. An estimated 50 to 70% of California's hired farm workers are not authorized to work in the United States. So these two advocacy groups have been pushing for a legislative solution that would help bridge that gap. They've reached a tentative compromise with Congress to expand the H-2A seasonal guest worker program, which is designed to provide a legal pathway for seasonal employees and provide immigrant farm workers with a path to citizenship. But H-2A was used by only 6% of the survey respondents, many saying that the program is unworkable for small growers. In the meantime, nearly 90% of farmers surveyed said that they've raised wages in recent years in hopes of hiring enough people. And more than half said they'd invested in labor-saving technology. So moving away from farm news over to Maine, first headline, edible seaweeds, from dulse to sugar kelp to Irish moss, have been celebrated in Maine restaurants during an annual seaweed week, are pushed as nutraceuticals in health food circles, and have ever grown popular to feed, have even grown popular as um, feed for cows because of possible environmental benefits. Maine's seaweed business has grown like a weed in recent years, but the industry is now facing sticky restrictions. Maine has a long tradition of seaweed harvesting, but a recent court ruling could dramatically change the nature of the business as permission from coastal landowners will be needed for harvesting rockweed, a type of seaweed that's critical to the industry. The Maine Seaweed Council, an industry advocacy group, has called the ruling a disappointing setback that will force harvesters to adjust. And lastly, this week, Maine became the first state to pass a ban on styrofoam containers. The ban will go into effect in 2021 and will be a tough supply cost increase for the restaurant industry, which has been struggling to address sustainable packaging issues for years. It's worth noting that hospitals, Meals on Wheels providers, and lobster dealers will be exempt from the ban. So go Maine. And speaking of Maine in summer, I need to give a quick plug for my, my oldest and dear friend Alex's new restaurant that was just open, that she just opened on a little island off the coast of Portland last summer. It's called Crown Jewel, and I'm finally checking it out this summer. And I encourage you to also, if you're in the Portland area, you can find more at crownjewelportland.com. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I will be really um, excited to bring Seth and Leslie into the conversation as we continue our exploration of food in correctional facilities. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. This is Kiko, your host, and you've tuned into an episode about the impact of prison food on people's lives, both while they're on the inside and afterwards. Our first guest brings with him a story of innovation. Seth Sundberg is the founder and CEO of Inside Out Bars. He played professional basketball, worked in real estate, and had several other professional roles that allowed him to pursue his entrepreneurial spirit. Seth Seth started Inside Out Bars after serving five years in federal prison. And while serving his time, he created a new food product that was healthy and could serve as a meal supplement to give his peers and himself a better option than the meals available. Now his company, Inside Out Bars, is on a mission-driven um is is on a mission with a social impact that helps their customers fuel their bodies with a powerful food supporting good health from the inside out seth is calling in from california welcome seth
2: hey kiko how are you thanks for having me
1: absolutely i'm well thanks how are you doing great cool good so seth before we hear about your business I do want to ask you a few questions about your experiences eating in correctional, in the in the facilities that you were in. So sure. um, if it's okay with you, I'll start with the same question I did with Halim in last week's episode, which is to ask if you will, will share why you came to be incarcerated in 2009.
2: Uh, sure. Most of it uh stems from arrogance and ignorance and greed um, <laughs> in a combination of the three. Um, but I, I filed my tax returns in two thousand and nine that uh, in a way that was criminal and uh, spent five years in federal prison for a tax fraud.
1: Okay, thanks. And which yep. facilities were you in, Seth? Can you describe you know where where you spent those five years sure. and what the food was like there?
2: Yeah, sure. So I spent a year in county jail um, in Santa Clara County and then went from there um through some transit centers and then ended up in latuna texas in el paso um and spent some time there then got transferred to uh mendota and uh, right outside of fresno and um and then ended up spending time there and then went back to texas and then was released from texas so um, the food i think kind of all along the way was um was different but The common theme was the lack of nutrition in all of it. I remember pretty vividly, you know, even being in county jail and having to, you know, get water out of the water faucet and put it into a cup and having to let it sit so that it could just settle um, before drinking it. And, you know, you do that for a year and uh, there's definitely effects effect to that for sure.
1: We didn't even yeah. water didn't even come up in last week's episode. Can I yeah. can I take a step back and ask a question that is sure. probably naive, but you know, Halim was moved to eleven different facilities over his time, and you were moved to I think you just mentioned maybe five. While the moving, you know, I have guesses, but can you kind of explain that? When when did yeah, you I have think- to move each time? Why did you have to move sure.
2: each time? Sure. So um, part of it is you know going through the process of. You know, I was dealing with my tr- my case uh, while I was at county jail, and then you know, once you get sentenced, then they tra- they send you through a transfer center, and you know, it's not like you know when you're free in the world, you're kind of going, oh, okay, I got to go to Texas, so I'll jump on a plane, and you know, I'll be there in, in three or four hours. Um, you know, there it's you get transferred to a transfer facility, they process your paperwork like the first place that I was at. Um, I was there for three months, and it's kind of just like this this purgatory space um, where you're just being kind of held and then, you know, getting ready to be shipped to where you're going to do, you know, do your time. And in the federal system, you know, there's not, they're not restricted by states. So, um, you know, you could be anywhere across the nation. They even, you know, they have a a term for people that kind of um, upset the system. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. And they, they call it diesel therapy and where they just keep transferring people you know, semi-intentionally, um, and just put them, you know, on a bus and and doing the transfers is a very difficult, challenging process. So, um, you know, being on a bus for hours on end, shackled, you know, uh, at your wrists and, and waist and ankles and, you know, it's just, and and I'm seven feet tall. So that, that makes everything even more, uh, more exciting to, to be in buses and planes and all that stuff too. So
1: dehumanizing in its own other way and and i can imagine that the transfers even from a food perspective are challenging as you are in a new setting each time and trying to figure out how to source the tastiest or also most nutritious food for yourself that you can in a new environment let alone all the relationships that you rely on that you've created in each setting before you're moved um And, and any trends or overall themes that you noticed, you know, between the California facilities, let's say, and the Texas facilities in terms of, you know, broad policies that you were aware of that that impacted what was served to you or offered to you even in the commissaries?
2: Yeah, I mean, so some of the stuff I didn't notice while I was in, and, and it's just since I've been uh, released and, and dealing with the system from the outside now, and and. You know they have kind of a, stri- a strict um, nutrient policy in the Bureau of prison system, at least, um, and it, um, you know, it's it's uh, on its surface it is doable. Um, you know, it's it's reasonable, and you know, there's there's like they're they're trying to get specific macronutrients, you know, in there and things like that. Um, in reality, I think the Um, the quality of the food um, is just is just poor um, to begin with and that you know anything that any nutrients that are in the food um, from the beginning are are either you know cooked out um, during that process or um, you know during the the transit process to get it to where the facility needs to be is just they just lose their their nutrient value there so I mean I think that was kind of (laughs) the common theme there's There's definitely pros and cons of different facilities, and, you know, some facilities had better tasting food, but I think just kind of the lack of nutrients across the board was was the common denominator.
1: Sure. And how did the food you were given in prison make you feel?
2: Um, It basically spoke to the entire dehumanizing process and that even even our food, you know, wasn't... uh, wasn't reflective of us being, you know, human and it was more just being stored and um, you know, put away for a while and it's not it's not a the food is not in place, I don't believe, for people to thrive, it's just to survive. So it's kind of the bare minimum to, you know, get the individuals that are being warehoused, you know, through the through the process as long as as long as possible with you know, as little expense, um, you know, as as uh, as they possibly put can put out to, to hold the people in there.
1: Yeah. And one thing that was fascinating to me in my research that I wonder if you can share any examples of was the food restrictions that happen in these settings due to security concerns that, you know, you would never, I would never have thought of before, you know, things like fruit, fruit pits could be carved into weapons. So, so stone fruit wouldn't be served. Um, which, which kind of security restrictions can you share that, that either surprised you or that you remember?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the fruits and vegetables that once were, um, you know, available either on the commissary or, you know, more just on the general trays, um, for general population, the, um, they got taken away because people were, you know, using them to either, you know, make Pruno or, um, you know, sell as a, as a, as its own kind of, you know, black market type of thing. thing. And, and so, um, you know, the more things that um, got taken off, the worse, obviously the options, you know, options words, it's, it's a, it's kind of a sad state in, in prison. You know, there's usually, not you know everybody's trying to just do their time and, and you know go home if they're going home and um, it's you know a couple people that you know the system uses those couple people to say okay well these people did this and so now we have to take it away for everybody um, right you know and and that was the that was the most painful part and that that applies to food and you know weights and and, and everything kind of across the board and that's their their reasoning behind that so
1: yeah. That makes sense. And when you say yeah. pruno, pruno is a kind of wine or liquor that's made from fruit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I also heard things like pepper or other seasonings, you know, have been weaponized and are sometimes withheld. Mm. Um, yeah. you know
2: cinnamon as well.
1: Cinnamon, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah. and and even like the process of moving in, in really high security settings, that even the process of moving prisoners to a meal is such an endeavor for the staff that, you know, only one meal will be served a day. Otherwise it's all, you know, in a container in, in the cellar room and that there have even been hunger strikes that have, that have, um, or food refusal events, I should say that have happened as a result of people just wanting a hot breakfast, but, but being refused that right because of, you know, this, this propensity to prioritize security.
2: Yep. yeah, definitely. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty rough. And in the, the food food distribution, I think you know at any level of institutions, whether it's schools or or uh, you know prisons or, or or whatever what have you, the military is you know is a logistical kind of challenge. And it's even worse, you know, when it comes to prison and, and the you know the the security threats and things like that that right. are there as well.
1: Right. Yeah. And did you consider yourself like a food-oriented person before you entered entered the the facilities that you were in, um, or did this 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 entrepreneurial venture come out of nowhere? You know, surprise even you.
2: Yeah, no, I I consider myself a, a food eater before this um, for sure, and, and just a consumer of food more than anything. But uh, um, yeah, no, I, I had never been in the food space um, from a business aspect before, and. You know, it's fascinating it's there's there's a lot of great things about it there's a lot of you know now that I that I've seen kind of the inner workings of it there's a lot of things that I think um, need to be improved and can be improved and I think technology is really being used to um, make big impacts in um, the way food is processed and delivered and um, or or non processed is, is a even even better way that I think technology is being able to impact it so hopefully a lot of that will will lead into the um, you know into the prison systems as well. and you know that's one of the things that we're trying to uh, uh, trying to do more of and get get food into you know good food, quality foods into the prison systems, you know directly so that there's you know more options. Um, you know and, and the reality is that some you know even even people that are free and not in prison, you know don't make the best food choices. So um, you know it's just more just giving people, inside prison an option. I think that, uh, you know, they at least have healthy options to choose from and, and whether they do or don't is every individual's, you know, right to do. But uh, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of, a, a lot that I've learned in this process um, that I that I never knew before.
1: And so if you came in without food experience, what led you to, to take a job in the kitchen there? I think you spent several years working in the kitchen while you yeah. were incarcerated. You know, what led you there? What were you doing in that role?
2: Yeah, it's kind of, uh, so it's interesting because in prison, there's a 100% employment rate. Um, and everybody has to have a job uh, unless you're you know disabled or you know you have a you have a, a doctor's note to, to not work um you know which is very different than the 30 percent unemployment rate um with people that have been released from prison um, but um when you first get in they assign you different roles and you know you can you know if you've been kind of in the system for a while and or you know people at the, at the facility you're just getting to you can kind of you know pick and choose which job you want but uh um if you don't, then they just kind of throw you in different places, and I just got thrown into the kitchen. Got so it wasn't it wasn't like I chose, chose to do it, but um, once I was there, it was, you know, it was kind of interesting, and, and some of the some of the guys that were working there, um, you know, I liked to. and so you know, we tried to make the most of it, and and uh, um, that's how it that's how it started.
1: And you you shared a story um, that I read about handling a box of chicken marked quote not for human consumption um right. that that kind of really like pushed you to a realization that the food you were serving was telling you that you had lost your human dignity and and that probably was right. part of like the fire that led you to create a solution for yourself but but right. the solution you created was one that that came from the commissary right
2: right yeah exactly so i mean you know i was always like i said paying attention to what kind of food I was, you know, putting in my body, and, and being a, you know, former professional athlete, was always very conscious of that, especially when I was playing, and and uh, since I've been retired, just just aware of it, and you know, it was, it was very clear that um, there was no nutrient value, you know, in the in the food that we were eating, um, but uh, as we, you know, as we went forward into the into the prison system, it was that one event that was just the triggering event that i was like okay enough like i'm i'm never eating the chicken again and and uh that was the you know it was the only time i saw that box you know there but it was enough to just go right, i gotta i gotta figure something else out and you know i'm not gonna eat the chicken so i'm not gonna be getting you know the protein from that whatever there was in the first place and i need to have a supplement you know to to get the calories and and s- as much protein as possible so we, we just started doing different experiments with items off the commissary and Trying to find the healthiest things we could get and ended up coming up with, uh, what we now call, uh, criminally delicious and functionally nutritious protein bar, um, that started there. And it was initially just between me and a couple of the guys that I knew inside. Um, and then next thing you know, other people were saying, you know, what are you doing? And, uh, wanted to, wanted to purchase protein bars. And so we ended up having, um, you know, a full production line of guys making the bars, and we had salespeople in different units, and you know, we're trading trading uh, protein bars for fish and stamps and commissary stuff. And but yeah, it was all from the commissary, and it was all, you know, um, what was what was kind of available and and the best that we could do with what we had.
1: It's it's amazing to picture. And how did you make lemonade from lemons from the commissary? Because I hear that you know they have ramen and honey buns just you know mostly by and large Mm -hmm. high high sugar high sodium snacks Mm -hmm. which which ingredients were you able to use in your bars and also i'm curious how how different the bars that you sell now that you know you have every ingredient accessible to you are from what you were eating and, and selling there
2: yeah so the the bars now are very very different than they were originally they've gone through a few different phases but uh um, initially we actually, when I got, when I, when I left prison, I walked out of prison with the box of the bars that we we're making inside in my pocket. And, you know, that's kind of the beginning of how all this, all this happens. But, uh, I sold those bars just the same way we made them in prison for a little over a year, um, with, uh, the same exact ingredients and wrapped the same way. We just used a, a special sticker just to kind of see if that was our, that was our minimum viable product, just to see if anybody of cared about what we were doing and and um you know the attention that we were trying to raise around um you know food in prison and uh also specifically employment for people with criminal records and uh um so did that and then and then iterated from that into another product and then iterated to that into what we have now which is a very uh a very unique product in the in the sense that it has a probiotic and a prebiotic inside of the bars as well right. so it's, that's the that's the functional side of the of the product now. Um, and I think you'll see more and more of that coming about where, where there's a probiotics, um, you know, inside of the foods that, that are being eaten. And hopefully, you know, we can, we can do more of that inside of the prison system too, because there's a lot of, a lot of good benefits from that. But, um, um, yeah, so that was, that was the that was how that started and what was the other question
1: well i was just asking what ingredients you sourced from the commissary then versus what the core ingredients are now
2: so we started off with um, using rolled oats and let's see if i can remember all the original ingredients rolled oats peanut butter Um, they had a trail mix there that was called a heavenly trail mix which is actually very good um it had like bits of pineapple and um, dried pineapple and cranberries and almonds and, uh, coconut slices. And then, um, we used honey then we got off the commissary. Um, then we used, um, <laughs> we used a, uh, like a, um, oh, what do you call that thing? A chocolate, a chocolate, uh, chocolate milk, um, powder mm-hmm. and also a, um, crushed up um, like cinnamon toast crunch cereal, and, and just to add a little cinnamon and flavor to it as well. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, in prison, everybody's got the same access to the same ingredients, right? It's not like you can go to a different grocery store and, you know, find new new ingredients. So um, there was really no there was really no intellectual property that we had that was specific to the to the actual ingredients we put in our bars. But we figured out a way to make them. Um where they held together and you know, we could we could store them and do all the things we wanted to do. That was pretty unique and that other people weren't able to duplicate. So um that was that was our IP inside prison.
1: Nice. Sounds delicious. <laughs> I would eat yeah, that.
2: Yeah. Um yeah, very good.
1: how so and then how did your kind of your background and your origin story serve you when it came to accessing markets and accessing capital when you had emerged from the system? Um, You know, have people been really interested in investing in or even purchasing as consumers your product because of, you know, the story behind it? Or, you know, have you felt that there are barriers to doing that because people, you know, might not trust someone with a record or, or any other yeah. reason?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think both are applicable, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, my, my background, I, I've done a few things You know in my past before and 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 there were there were you know uh, some decent accomplishments that i'm proud of and getting getting out of release from prison was very 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 difficult for me um the transition back was very difficult both just you know from um you know uh, an emotional side from an economical side you know but also just you know from a mental health side there was things that I really didn't know that I was dealing with when I first got out that now I can look back after being out for five years and go, wow, that was, you know, I was really, really going through some things that, you know, I wasn't aware of that had happened. And, you know, I spent five years in prison, which is, you know, not a, not a drop in the bucket, but it's also not, you know, not a long time compared to the time that a lot of these guys, and men and women do. And, uh, you know, there's real, there's real mental health challenges in that. And I think, you know, speaking specifically to, the ability of food to heal um you know there's with proper nutrition and and uh you know good water and and you know purified water and things like that i think a lot of the the issues that um you know come from the damage that being incarcerated does can be mitigated um you know so Uh, that's one of the things that I, you know, the the real pushes that we're trying to make, you know, to get the bars and and other things, other healthy things into the system. But as far as, you know, access to capital, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely difficult, you know, people, people, you know, look at me and, um, you know, and, and the truth is I'm a seven foot white guy that, you know, people don't automatically look at me and go, Oh, this guy's been to prison. You know, that's not, that's not a thing, but, you know, I was very clear about, you know, my past and my history and, um, you know, and and there's people that, you know, that definitely passed on, on the opportunity for, you know, for maybe multiple reasons, but I'm sure that, you know, being, um, you know, making the decision that I made, you know, years ago um, plays into that. And, um, you know, the other things are, you know, the the food space is a, you know, it's a very um, niche market and it's a very tight market and there's, you know, low margins and things like that in it. So it's, you know, it's very competitive, um, but it's you know it's it's a great uh, you know great space to be, and it's it's a lot of fun at the same time. So um, yeah, there there are challenges across the board with you know reentry and you know reentry and entrepreneurship together are you know are challenging, but, but definitely uh, one of the you know one of the avenues to create um, you know kind of your own employment after you know post incarceration. So
1: um, right that makes sense so two last questions about you know the intersection of your business and your background before i bring leslie into the conversation one of them is you alluded to you know wanting to get the bars into prisons have you Mm -hmm. been able to do that is that is that a big part of your distribution um strategy
2: yeah it's not it's not as big as we want it to be yet but we've definitely um you know we've definitely penetrated um some of the prison systems um Specifically, we're in three California state prisons, and then um, a couple of other state prisons in other other states. Um, we just got approval from the Bureau of Prisons to be able to start marketing to um, uh, the the BOP facilities across the nation as well, which is very exciting. Congratulations! So, um, yeah, thank you. And and it's uh it's interesting because. You know, having a probiotic and a, and a prebiotic in the bars, it we had to be very careful how we promoted this and saying, you know, that, Hey, if this is a, you know, instead of being a supplement bar, um, we wanted to make sure that it was just people that the, uh, prison systems knew that it was a protein bar, you know, that was made with quality ingredients. And, and that was that because, um, you know, if not, then we'd have to go through another channel to, you know, to, uh, get medical clearance and things, of, things of that nature. So, um, but I think you know it's almost like you know felt a little bit like smuggling the bars back into prison a little bit so um, it's a, it's an interesting right. change of uh, change of scenery for sure
1: Right, um. ironic <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, and and then the the last question is just about your um, commitment to employing returning citizens as part of your team mm. um, yeah. you know how are you doing that how many how many are on your team and um what roles are you you know recruiting them to to play with you with you and how's that going Yeah,
2: yeah so there there's a, there's three of us directly that are that are connected to the company that have criminal records but the thing that we've done where we make the most impact is that we work with um, uh, organizations we have a co-packer that makes the products we have a a fulfillment center that that ships all the products and delivery and everything and and uh, we've made clear to only work with organizations that um, have an open hiring policy and that will bring people in that have criminal records. And the reason that we feel that that's so um, important is because, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with some of the the recidivism statistics uh, that 76% of the people that are released from prison within the first five years will return um, and that out of 89% of those people that go back to prison at the time of their rearrest are unemployed. So we feel like if we can, you know, help in that piece and provide employment, you know, through whether it's direct employment through our organization or throughout the, you know, the companies in the, in the entire supply chain that we work with, um, you know, and start spreading the word that, you know, this is, you know, we we are uh, folks that made a mistake and you know paid the price for it. But um, you know, once we're released, that that that, in my opinion, should be the end of the, you know, the end of the sentence. And uh, it's not the case yet, but. Um, hopefully, with kind of being able to, you know, have open hiring policies and, and show that, you know, we can we have a lot to offer, you know, even though we do have a record um, that companies are are picking up, you know, great assets that, uh, you know, that they can build upon, and we can help, you know, reduce the the cycle of recidivism as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really powerful connection you share with those two stats lined up next to each other about employment as a strategy, as like a key strategy against recidivism. Um, And, and I guess the best thing you can do is just shout from the mountains about the success you have with those employees. Right. Right. Um, And, and, and and your own success, of course. Thank you, Seth. I'm going to bring Leslie in and then, you know, feel free. I know it's hard with you on the phone. Leslie's here in studio with me, but to interject and we can go back and forth a little bit too. Um, sure. and Leslie, thanks for your patience with me. Uh, so yes, I want to bring Leslie into the conversation because, as I said in the beginning of kicking off the institutional food series, I am trying to share perspectives from people who have lived the institution's food, which today is, of course, you, Seth, and also others who have studied it on a macro scale. And Leslie is an ethnographer specializing in food and food ways. She's the founder and artistic director of Story Soup a project that creates context for dialogue across cultural and generational borders through food and narrative. And Leslie's currently a research fellow at Impact Justice, a national innovation and research center advancing new ideas and solutions for justice reform. They work to dramatically reduce the massive number of youth and adults in our justice system, improve conditions and outcomes for those who are incarcerated, and provide meaningful opportunities for formerly incarcerated people to rejoin their communities. Leslie, welcome. Thank you. And thank you so, so much for all of your help connecting with people about this topic. Because as I mentioned in the last episode, it was not an easy one to find guests and and, um, and firsthand perspectives from. So you were invaluable to me in producing these. Um, So I know you lead the Research for Impact Justice's Food in Prison Project, and in that capacity, you leverage your experience as an ethnographer who has studied the role of food in people's lives, individually and societally. Can you ground us a bit in how the environment in which food is served in um, affects people on an emotional level in these facilities um, and can influence their actions while
0: incarcerated and even afterwards? Sure. So it's not just the food that we eat, but it's about how we eat it. And if you think about how you feel and how you act in different settings, like a holiday dinner with family or a night out on a date or a cookout outside with friends, and how the atmosphere and the space itself and the light and the sounds and the smells affect you, those same aspects of the environment impact the mental and emotional state of people who are on the inside. Um, Often in a negative way when it could be loud and there isn't a lot of natural light and the smells are unpleasant and people are being told to eat at times that might not feel natural to their bodies. So we know that the way that we eat can be used to have a positive and lasting impact. You know, the act of cooking has been shown to lower blood blood pressure and decrease stress. We've all heard about the positive effects that sitting down for regular family meals has on youth. And... When we take away opportunities for food choice and when and how to eat, when we take away opportunities for people to engage with food through cooking, um, when we people have to scarf down their meals in a hostile environment, which is often the case for a prison chow hall, all of that has lasting effects as well, and people are leaving prison not just with physical after effects like dietary-related diseases, but also other eating-related impacts on their mental health and emotional well-being.
1: Yeah, and I I, I think it was you, but maybe someone in, in over the course of my pre-episode conversations just talked even about the fact that you're eating with plastic cutlery on a plastic <laughs> or you know some <laughs> composite tray, um, and you know there are potentially guards breathing down your neck. All these things. Um, are are such direct environmental impacts um, and and how can you just talk about how these these practices disrupt connection to life on the outside?
0: Sure so you know people have routines people are very culturally connected through food to families, communities, um, ethnic communities, religious communities and food is how we communicate with each other. It's how we Uh, express our identity. It's how we connect. And when those opportunities are taken away from us, it really disrupts our sense of who we are. It disrupts our connections to other people and the way that we've gone about our life. And that can be, you know, a lasting and important way of, um, you know, of of understanding who you are and your place in the world and making meaning in your life.
1: That so resonates with me. I think about my social network and how many of the people that I feel closest to are that way because of the bonds we've created due to food interests. And I can only imagine, Seth, the, the guys that you were, um, you know, building the, the venture with um, during, in the facility that you had a certain bond with them through through the foods that you were sourcing and the taste tastings that you were probably doing taste tests and, and all yep. of that, too.
2: Yep, definitely. One of the things too that uh, I think I'll add to is what Leslie was talking about about the environment is that you know you only have a specific amount of time in the Chow Hall. There's there's not it's not like you get to go in there and hang out and lounge and you know you got you got people that are that are barking at you to hurry up and eat and, and you know we got to get back and get out of there and you know all the guards telling you to to hurry up and, and so that definitely causes amount of stress and and also. I think that stress affects, you know, the digestion process as well and your your body's ability to, you know, to absorb whatever nutrients are there, you know, on top of it.
1: Really, really good point. I have to say that's a that's a challenge in schools, too, um, yeah. that, that I know of just being a teacher. So, Leslie, food jobs while in prison um, are something that we talked a little bit about with Seth and Haleem. And... I think there are two sides of that coin that I'd like to hear you talk about. Um, You know, on the positive side, I think that some food jobs might be an avenue for healing or empowerment. Um, Can you talk a little bit about garden jobs that, that, that are offering those kinds of benefits?
0: There are some facilities that have farm and garden programs that are doing really great things, and people are getting outside, they're working with plants and sometimes even animals, they're learning job skills, they're engaging in really meaningful work, and these are often um, really desired jobs to have. Uh, However, some of the farm and garden programs are also perpetuating racial injustice. The relationship between prison labor and agricultural work can be traced back to slavery and convict leasing, and today over 30,000 incarcerated people, disproportionately people of color, are currently working in farming or food-related jobs within the prison system, and they're often facing substandard working conditions and earning very small wages, usually less than about $3 a day.
1: Right, and you 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 shared with me um, a story about how some farm and garden programs allow for the, the folks who are growing the food to then eat it themselves and serve it to those who they're in the facility with, while others actually ship it out to you know other institutions and and stuff which might be hard it might feel um disempowering as well um also in the realm of the intersection of food jobs and you know being incarcerated i know there are some culinary education programs that both prepare people to work in the kitchens while inside but also um, arm them with certain certifications and readiness for um, job-seeking once they're released. What what kind of bright lights can you share with us um, in that avenue?
0: There are a number of great culinary training programs. There's uh, Fife and Drum at the Northeastern Correctional Facility in Massachusetts. There's the Food Technology Program at Macomb Correctional Facility in Michigan. And these are training people not just about food safety and basic culinary skills, but also often about food businesses, Um, Fife and Drum in Massachusetts actually has a restaurant where people who are participating in the program get to serve the public, they get to design their own dishes and interact with people who are coming in, and that also helps break down some of those assumptions about people who have been incarcerated. It breaks down those social barriers when people who are towards the end of their sentences and have gone through this training program are able then to interact with people on the outside and also participate in something that feels meaningful and productive. Right, right. And one other
1: interesting, you know, food um, innovation that, that I've heard about um, in conversation with you and others, um, you know, similar to how Seth's story is one of invention through creation of his business. I know there's a lot, another form of innovation that has come in kind of recipe development that has led to cookbooks um, um, that, you know, prison cookbooks. There's a whole category of them. Can you tell us about those?
0: So some people have found those cookbooks to be really empowering and a way to make something good out of their time inside. And other folks that we've talked with as we've been doing our research uh, have expressed that those cookbooks can feel exploitative and might serve as a reminder for something that people would rather not remember. Um, And for people who are interested in checking those cookbooks out, definitely go ahead. They're interesting, but remember that they're not fully representational of the prison food experience. You know, Food is an essential part of culture, and People in every culture will find ways to incorporate food into celebration and connecting to the seasons and showing love and affection and mourning and so on. Um, humans are incredibly resourceful and so people will still figure out ways to do that even in circumstances like incarceration. And you know, people like Seth are continuing to make really amazing things by using food creatively in a restricted setting. But that doesn't mean that there's not something wrong with the messages that we're sending overall at an institutional level through the rest of the food. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. I I hear you. I hear you. Mm -hmm. And it's important to, you know, I think it's easy for those of us who haven't done this research or, of course, haven't lived it to see more of the positive side of those cookbooks and not understand the negative feelings that could come back to someone who has survived the experience inside and and then encounters those recipes again much later and might not want to. Um, So I want to kind of shift Leslie and talk about kind of what's next going forward. So what, first of all, in terms of improving the situation nationally, which is the focus of Impact Justice, what is the end goal for your organization?
0: So the Food in Prison project is documenting the short and long term effects of eating in confinement. And we're analyzing the structures that have created the current system in the first place and identifying opportunities for change.
1: And and But didn't you also tell me that the overall goal is just reduce the number of people that are there in the first place?
0: Absolutely. It's not enough just to make the, the food better and to make sure that people have access to good nutrition. We need to make sure that there are fewer people getting involved in the system in the first place. Absolutely. Right. And
1: so for your Food in Prison project, which was just released, and there's great resources online... Um, at impactjustice.org forward slash impact forward slash food dash in dash prison. Um, What kind of people are you talking with? You've alluded to, you know, various conversations as you're in your research.
0: Mm -hmm. So we're conducting interviews and surveys with people who have experienced incarceration firsthand, as well as their families and community leaders. Um, We're also doing some site visits and interviews with leaders at correctional facilities and state departments of correction. Um, We're also talking with some experts who are working in nutrition, mental health, public health, law, sociology, criminal justice, uh, about their research, research that's already been done. We are talking with people from other sectors and other countries working on institutional food um, you know, also talking about people, talking with people who are running some of the, the programs that are currently seen as some of those bright lights, like some of those garden programs or culinary programs.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I p- pulled from hearing and reading about your project is the value of kind of de-siloing all of these fields that have done research on food in prisons for diff- from different angles and pulling it all together to kind of create some takeaways and pilot projects. So what are some of the pilot projects that you think might um, be worth pursuing based on the research so far?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're not 100 percent sure yet. We're not at a point in our research where we feel like we can be the ones making those decisions. We still have a lot of talking to do with people about their ideas and what might be feasible and what might work. Um, but there are a lot of simple changes I mean I don't know if you've heard about some of the schools that have started installing like what they call flavor bars where there are seasonings and sauces and things like that for people to add to their food so that it can taste the way that they want it to taste and they have some sense of ownership in what they're about to eat so even something that's a small change like that could work in a facility where it doesn't cost that much it doesn't take that much effort to put it in but people might have a much better experience with the food because of something like that.
1: Really interesting just introducing the the component of choice um, and, and bringing back a little bit of agency that way um, so I want to talk about um, also what listeners can do because this is something that, that Impact Justice is working on but you know given now that listeners have heard you know uh, grim situations from, from Halim and from Seth and you know all of the statistics around not only the food, but the health impacts and and recidivism rates and all the things that we've been talking about on these two episodes. Um, let's talk about first of all, Seth. Something as simple as where can listeners find your bars?
2: Uh, yeah, they can go to InsideOutBar.com, dot com, um, which is the easiest way to find it.
1: Okay, so you're not in retail stores yet.
2: We have we have a couple um, a couple shops that we're in. We're in like Alcatraz, just just. Uh, Gift shop on the on the Rock cool. in San Francisco and a couple of places there, but um, we realized that retail was not the the direction that we wanted to go in, and we wanted to just build out the, uh, the you know get the bars in prison and build out that channel more and more, and and uh, hopefully open that up for not just us, but you know other companies that have good food products to do the same thing and have a better offering inside prison.
1: I could imagine that getting the the breadth and depth really of the story across on a retail shelf would be very challenging. It is. Um, And then, Leslie, I guess, when will the findings, will there be a report or a way for listeners to dig into kind of the the takeaways of your research?
0: Yeah, our research will be released as of right now. We're planning um, the late fall of this year. So stay tuned. Keep looking at our website for updates.
1: Okay. And I know that, Leslie, you're um, also – you know, Impact Justice is findable on Twitter at Impact Justice. Um, and I shared the website. Seth, um, Seth, you have Inside Out Bars um, presence on social media, on Instagram, Inside Out Bars, Twitter also Inside Out Bars. So those are just places to, to follow these two online. But before we close up, I want to talk about action items. So I always ask my listeners, and um, I'm excited to ask each of you, for one specific action item that we haven't talked about yet that our listeners can take to either further the work you're doing or even to have an impact on the food system that is unrelated to the topic that we've talked about today that is an opportunity area you really think people can affect through our day-to-day actions seth do you want to go first
2: yeah, I think, um, you know, I think the, the biggest piece, whether it's, you know, directly with our company or other companies is, is really employment for people with criminal records. You know, that's, there's, you, you, you've probably given me a great opportunity to plug the bars specifically. And obviously if people want a great product and they can get, get the bars. But I think on a more macro level, if people are involved with companies that, uh, you know, that are looking for, for talent and, you know, across the nation or run their own companies and, have thought about hiring from this population before. I think I just wanna, you know, really, you know, say that's the best action item that they could possibly have and, and you know, don't discount people that, you know, have made a made a, a poor choice in the past as to who they are, you know, currently today.
1: Thanks, Seth. Thanks. I, I hear you loud and clear. Thanks for underscoring that one. Yeah. And Leslie over to you.
0: I will first make a plug for the Cranberry Almond Inside Out bars <laughs> from Seth's <laughs> company. They're they're very good. Um, Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. Um, I guess one thing for me is just talk about this issue. There's not a lot of awareness about it, and a shift in cultural mindset is what can really bring about change in policy and in practice, and you know, there are 2.8 million people incarcerated in the United States. I think, Kiko, you said that at the beginning of the episode, and about 95% of them will eventually be released, and it is in everyone's best interest for people to walk out of the prison gates in better physical and mental and emotional shape than when they went in. So, yeah, I mean, just educate yourselves, your families, your friends about this issue. Um, Continue to recognize that food is really a huge factor in people's lives and that we need to respect everyone's humanity, acknowledge everyone's humanity, no matter where they are or who they are.
1: Thanks, Leslie. On that note, I I wanna just shift before signing off to what I mentioned I would would, um, share a little bit about in the beginning of the episode. I mentioned that this is the last episode I'm hosting for Lunch Agenda this year before a little maternity leave as I welcome my second child. So I've secured, I've, I have scoured, I should say, the area for the most interesting and curious food system thinkers that I could find to hold court in the Lunch Agenda host chair while I'm gone. And so I'm excited to unveil them to you now. And you can find more about them on my Instagram, Kiko Buff. I'll share their pictures and stuff next week. But I want to you know, just give you quick, quick um, info about them. So first, we're going to welcome Alexia Brown as a guest host. And she'll be um, coming to you starting next month. And Alexia is an undergrad student at University of Maryland College Park where she studies behavioral and community health. And she's cut her radio chops both as general manager at the university radio station, WMUC-FM 88.1, and she is the studio manager right here at Full Service Radio. So I was thrilled that she wanted to step in here. And her passions include hip-hop, health equity, and all the ice cream, as she says. And um, I'm looking forward to hearing her dig into... The Health Outcomes of Marginalized Populations in D.C., which she says she really wants to learn more about. And, you know, as she puts it, she'll bring kind of a beginner's mindset, being a Maryland native, to the D.C. work that's being done. So I think she'll have great conversations with her guests. And then finally, picking up the reins later in the summer, we'll have guest host Nani Dutton. Um, And Nani oversees farmers markets operations for Fresh Farm, which many of you know is the D.C.-based nonprofit that promotes sustainable agriculture and improves food access and equity all across our mid-Atlantic region. Nani's Baltimore-born and raised, and so I'm excited for him to bring that perspective. He got his start in the food scene there, working at farmers markets for Atwater's Bakery. And as he puts it, he never attended college, instead credits Baltimore for his abundant street experience, which by street experience, he means spending most of his time at the library and on Wikipedia. And he serves on the board of the Farmers Market Coalition and loves cats, although his roommates are allergic. So we'll see which of these diverse experiences he brings in to the series he will host later in summer and fall. And that's it for me. Thank you, Leslie, again. Thank you, Seth, for, for calling in from where you are. And uh, thanks, all of you listeners, for joining through the end of this institutional food series. Um, I, I do invite you to please DM me at KikoBuff if there are any food system topics that you think my guests, hosts, or I should consider covering over the coming months. And um, keep listening to Lunch Agenda. Thanks again for tuning in today and have a good one, everybody.